Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, May 31st, 2020, and this is show number 786. Well, how fun was the Crew Dragon launch this week from uh, that uh, combination effort between SpaceX and NASA? I really had a great time watching that. Steve and I were glued to the screens and I got to confess, I actually cried when that rocket took off. That was that was really emotional. Anyway, then I decided the perfect place to watch the hash the hatch open on the ISS by the guys coming Bob and Doug coming out of the Crew Dragon was on the screen in my Tesla via YouTube watching the NASA feed. Figured I'd pull in uh, you know everything Elon and NASA all together into one place. But uh, congratulations to everyone at SpaceX and NASA. That was really, really cool. We do have John, also known as NASA Nut, who works at NASA in the live chat. So uh, tip of the hat to any efforts you have in that NASA arena. Well, I'm not going to lie to you guys. This week's installment of Programming by Stealth was pretty rough for me. It builds on the foundation Bart laid in PBS 95, where he introduced JavaScript getters and setters. And it was pretty clear that uh, this previous lesson had not sunk in for me yet. I'm definitely going to have to go back and study PBS 95 a couple more times, maybe get some practice in on doing this getter setter concept before that penny is going to drop for me. But hopefully you understood it better than I did on that first time through. In any case, in PBS 97, we extend that knowledge to learning about class data attributes and functions. We'll learn the static nomenclature, which is used to mark attributes and functions as belonging to the class rather than the instances of a class. Bart spends most of the lesson on a worked example using emoji to create what he playfully calls a nerd touche as a head nod to the cartouche used by Egyptian pharaohs. And yes, he manages to work the poop emoji into this lesson. You can find this week's episode of Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice or listen over at the link in the show notes where you can also find a link to Bart's full tutorial show notes. At CES in January, I interviewed Aaron Karamechi from Diamond Dog, the company that makes the tempered glass screen protectors with patented diamond-clad, diamond-like carbon coating technology. Well, I challenged Aaron to convince me that I would like having any screen protector on my phone. The main point of his demonstration was the indestructibility of the Diamond Dog tempered glass. Aaron gave me a big screw with a super sharp tip on it, and I tried as hard as I could to get a gouge on a phone with a Diamond Dog screen protector, but I failed. I did have to acknowledge that it would provide some amazing protection, but I still didn't want it on my phone. You see, to me, screen protectors remind me of how in the 1950s, homemakers everywhere would put plastic covers over their furniture so that they'd stay nice. Sure, they'd be nice for the next person, or maybe for company if we were really lucky, but all the rest of the time, the furniture looked terrible and it was uncomfortable. Screen protectors seem like the same thing to me. You put a screen protector on so that the next person who owns your phone gets a nice pristine glass screen on the phone when you sell it to them but the whole time you have it, it looks terrible. In the old days, screen protectors were made of plastic. They got scarred up quickly and they always had bubbles under the screen. I don't mean sometimes, I mean always, always, always had bubbles under the screen. On top of that, they were kind of sticky feeling so your, your finger didn't slide like it was on the original glass. I've also seen a lot of people with cracked screen protectors on their phones, and I could never understand why you walk around with a cracked screen protector. That's stupid. 
Well, Aaron insisted that the Diamond Dog screen protectors were different. He gave me a free one and he challenged me to try it out. I like free stuff as well as the next person. So I took it, but I knew I wouldn't like it. I brought it home and I considered putting it on my phone, but I just couldn't get myself to put it on. I was torn because even if it would protect my phone, I was sure that when I put it on, I'd get a big stupid bubble under it and I would hate it. Well, in February, Dave Hamilton came to our house for a visit. I'd heard Dave on the Mac Geek Gab say that he was a huge believer in glass screen protectors. He said he buys lots of them. He keeps them in stock at his house and he puts them on friends' phones when they come over. I asked Dave if he would put the Diamond Dog on my phone for me and he readily agreed. Now, I don't know about other screen protectors and how fancy their installation is, but the Diamond Dog came with several things to make it easier to have a good application experience. They gave you a nice little wet wipe and a dry one and a little sticky thing for picking any remaining lint off of the screen. It even came with a little frame to put over your phone so that you were sure to align the screen protector properly with no effort at all. Now, Dave is a wild man. He didn't even read the instructions before he did all of those things. In a few seconds, he had applied the Diamond Dog to my screen. Now, before I tell you what I thought of the Diamond Dog, let's set the criteria for a successful screen protector in my mind. I would suggest the following. First of all, doesn't feel creepy or annoying. Feels like the original glass. Second of all, no bubbles under that screen. Number three, screen responds as though you're on the original glass. Like it feels like you're on the original glass. It also has to not look bad. It can't get scratches, it can't be milky-looking, milky and it can't have noticeable edges. And finally, it actually protects the phone when something bad happens. After Dave applied the Diamond Dog to my phone, I was immediately disappointed. There were several tiny little bubbles under the screen. Dave said not to worry about it. He said just rub it a little bit and they would eventually disappear. I was dubious about this, but after a little, a little bit of work, I was able to get them to vanish. Now, once I was over the bubble fiasco, I could focus on the feel of the Diamond Dog. I have to confess that it felt like the original glass. I could absolutely detect no difference. I didn't notice any weird stickiness that I had noticed with the old screen protectors that I had seen in the past. The one thing that bothered me was that at the bottom edge of the phone where you swipe to go up to the home screen, I could feel the edge of the tempered glass. For the first day or two, it was super noticeable. And then I don't know what happened, but somehow I completely stopped noticing it at all. In fact, I pretty much forgot that I had a screen protector on my phone. The phone was just as responsive as with the original glass of my phone. For 13 months, I kept the Diamond Dog on my phone, and that patented tempered glass looked as pristine as the day Dave applied it. Now, you can hear the minor chord swelling in the background, can't you? Dun, 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 here it comes. Well, in late May, we went to Lindsay's house to see our grandchildren. The climate is quite warm, even in springtime, and we love to hang out in and around her pool. I like to keep my phone nearby in case an adorable moment with my grandson breaks out. However, since it's so hot out, a phone left out in the sun will do that thing where it shuts itself down because it overheats. The poor thing doesn't have a chance with that black screen absorbing all that heat. My phone has a white back, and it's in a clear rubbery case with a ledge around the glass, so I thought, maybe I'll just put it face down on the concrete, and then it would stay cool. Well, the good news is I was right. The phone did not overheat. The bad news is that I evidently put the phone down on top of a tiny rock, or maybe there was a little bit of concrete sticking up, 
and my screen got cracked. But of course, it did not actually crack my phone screen, it cracked the diamond dog instead. Now, while we don't know for sure that my real screen would have cracked as badly as the diamond dog, looking at the big chip out of it where I set it on the rock, I'm 90% certain that I would have at least taken a chunk out of the real screen on my phone. Now, I'm sure somebody here is saying, well, wait a minute, you couldn't gouge it with that screw. Why did this rock, this rock crack it? Well, you know what? I'm okay with that because I saved the screen on my phone. Now, do you remember earlier how I mocked people who walk around with cracked screen protectors on their phones? I have to confess, I did not take the cracked diamond dog off until I purchased a new one. It looked awful with four crack lines and this big chip out of it, but I was convinced that if I took it off, I'd do something else stupid and break my real screen. I've had iPhones since they came out. I've never had a screen protector on, but once that thing got cracked, I knew that I had to get another one on there. Well, after I received the new Diamond Dog, I was afraid to put it on without Dave Hamilton. I was sure I would do it wrong. What if I got a bubble under the screen? What if I put it on crooked? Well, after a couple of days, I finally got my nerve up to give it a go. I removed the old protector by prying it up on the corner and the whole thing lifted off in one nice piece. I was relieved to see that the iPhone screen underneath was as pristine as the day I bought it. It was super clean too, with no fingerprints or lint. Being obsessive by nature, I cleaned it anyway with the wet wipe and I dried it with the dry wipe. I placed the plastic frame around the phone, which to be honest really doesn't clip on like they say it does, but it just sort of rests on the phone, but it doesn't line the screen properly. I put the screen protector down in the middle first like they said and then I pushed out to the edges as the manual instructed. And I got a giant bubble in the middle of the screen. <laughs> not tiny bubbles, not tiny movable bubbles like when Dave did it. One that when you pushed on it, it compressed into a series of smaller bubbles and then it came back as soon as I stopped rubbing it. It was super noticeable. Well, after a few hours of pretending I could get past it and leave it there, I realized that I had to try to fix it. I gently pried up the corner so just the top half was not stuck to the screen and I slowly pushed it down from the middle to the top again. I was finally able to get rid of that huge bubble. Now, there still were a couple of little tiny bubbles on the screen, but I'm definitely not going to try to fix those. They're so tiny. I can still see one. It's been a couple of days. I should rub it some more. Anyway, I did then notice that somehow while prying it up on the corner, a tiny bit of lint crept into that corner. I'm trying to decide whether it bugs me enough to try to lift it up again and de-lint it with that sticky thing, or maybe I should just cut my losses and let it be. Where's Dave Hamilton when you need him? Well, the bottom line is that I'm a 100% believer in the Diamond Dog tempered glass screen protectors for your phones. I really never thought I could be sold on a screen protector, but this $30 protector saved my phone. The proof, I believe, is not that I liked the free one they gave me, it's that after the damage, I bought one with my own money. The Diamond Dog Tempered Glass Screen Protectors are available from MyDiamondDog.com for all sizes of iPhones 11, 10, 10R, and 10S, and the Google Pixel 3 and 4XLs, as well as the Samsung Galaxy S10, 10 Plus, and Note Plus. Now, I'll acknowledge they're not cheap at 30 bucks, but I'm a believer in the quality after it saved my phone. I do want to mention, I told you Dave buys them by the bushel and keeps them to give out to his friends. He says he just buys the inexpensive glass ones you can find on Amazon. I think he said he pays around 10 bucks for them. So maybe you want to go that route, but I'm sticking with my diamond dog. 
I take a lot of screenshots on my Mac, iPhones, and iPads. I use it to teach people how to use tools and to show developers where I have a question about their applications. I've reviewed a plethora of methods to take screenshots on macOS as a result. I think I take as many screenshots with my iPhone and iPad as I do my Mac. If I'm reviewing an iOS app for the podcast and blog, I take a ton of screenshots to make sure I remember exactly the steps I followed to set it up so I can refer back to them when I'm writing the article and so I can show you screenshots of what things look like. I take screenshots of all sorts of other random things too, just to help me remember something I was viewing. I just checked and I have 3,135 screenshots so far. I mean, seriously, there's not one, but two screenshots of a toilet seat I was thinking of buying and didn't actually buy. Well, Apple added two cool features to screenshots in the last few years that have made the obsessive screenshotters image library more manageable. In the Photos app, there's an auto-generated album for screenshots now. That's cool because it gives you an opportunity to view just your screenshots and maybe delete the ones of the toilet seat. That's also how I know I have 3,135 of them. The second feature is even more helpful to people like me who are clearly incapable of keeping their screenshots under control. In a recent update, I think it was iOS 13, after you take a screenshot, you're able to annotate it and send it to someone or save it to files, and then when you tap done, you're given the option of deleting or saving the screenshot to photos. This has helped me immensely. It hasn't entirely saved me, of course, but it's probably cut my saved screenshots down by 70%. Now, all of this walk down memory lane was just laying the groundwork for Apple's latest advancements in screenshots on iOS and iPadOS. They've added the ability to screenshot long-form content. Now, I thought this was an enhancement with iOS 13.5 because I had never seen it before, but I fired up an old iPhone and it's been here at least as far back as 13.4.1. I don't know if it was with iOS 13 or when. I've asked a bunch of people and most people I've showed this to went, I never saw that. Anyway, I figured if I didn't notice it, and we've established that I take a lot of screenshot snapshots, maybe you haven't noticed this either. The easiest way to explain what I mean by long-form content snapshots is to use an example. Open Safari to any web page, preferably a long-form blog post on podfeed.com. Might I suggest the one about Scylla the Sea Monster or perhaps the one about the shelf of abandoned hardware? They're nice and long. Anyway, take a screenshot. If you're on a device with Face ID, hold down the power and up buttons at the same time to take a screenshot. If you're on a Touch ID device, it's power and the home button. All right, so once you've got your screenshot, tap on the screenshot thumbnail in the bottom left to open it up in markup. When it opens, you'll see two new tabs at the top. The first says screen, and you'll see the screenshot you just took below that. The screenshot will have the familiar handles on the four corners and four sides, inviting you to tighten up the screenshot to just what you want. But the second tab says full page. You'll see the same screenshot, but the handles to crop the image are gone. More importantly, on the right side of the image, you'll see the entire web page as a thumbnail with the first page highlighted. You could drag the highlight up and down to view the entire document. In the upper right, is a little crop symbol, and if you tap that, you'll see the entire web page in the middle of the screen, now with crop handles. This allows you to still capture long-form content and yet crop to just the portion of that web page or whatever it was that you wanted. There's a cancel button in this cropping view that gets you back to the original full page view. On iPadOS, but not iOS, 
At the top right in both the screen and full page views, you now have a slider that changes the opacity of the image. I'm not 100% sure what function that provides, but I'll keep experimenting on different pages and see if I can figure out a problem this solves. I hope to also figure out why it's only on iPadOS and not on iOS. You've always been able to delete a screenshot by hitting the Done button in the upper left and then tapping on Delete Screenshots, but they've made it a bit easier now. There's a trash can in the upper right inviting you to toss it away. But there's another reason for that little trash can. I'm not entirely sure why this is possible, but when you're looking at a screenshot as we've been describing in Markup, you can screenshot that page. I know, this is kind of meta, right? You take it a screenshot of a screenshot that's inside. Uh, in, it's very confusing, but you know, stick with me here. When you take a screenshot of the screenshot page, it puts the new shot to the right of the first one you created. Of course, the new shot is slightly different because now that one captured the markup tools that are on screen and the thumbnail down the side and the trash can and all of that. Ooh, I should have taken a screenshot of that. Anyway, you can keep taking screenshots and they keep stacking up to the right. So you've got access to those. On the iPhone only, as you take more shots of the same page, you'll see little dots below the screenshot shown to indicate that you can swipe to see the other shots. Now, the way I like to swipe is swipe right across the middle of the screen because you will be dragging a red crayon across the middle of your image. Then you have to go find the undo arrow button and only then swipe in the correct area. I do this every single time. All right, but now taking screenshots of a screenshot is a goofy thing to do. So let's use this functionality for a real use case. When you take a normal screenshot, for a short time, the shot rests as a thumbnail in the bottom left of your screen. It turns out you can keep taking screenshots one after another, and they stack up there in the bottom left. So try this as an example. Let's say you're trying to teach somebody how to modify the keyboard settings on an iPad. Open up settings and drill down into the menus, and just keep taking screenshots as you drill down. When you're done, you'll have a stack of thumbnails in the bottom left, and if you tap on it right away, you'll get them all side by side in the markup utility. Don't delay on tapping them though, or they whoosh into your photos library. Now you have all of the screenshots side by side in the markup utility, and you can mark them up and maybe mail them to someone as a quick little tutorial. In the upper right, there's the familiar share box with that upwards arrow. When you select it, you have the option to save or share all of the snapshots you've taken, so it will say, three images at the top if you've got your original plus two more, like I used for this demonstration. You can save all of your screenshots to either files or photos, but the long form screenshot can only be saved to files because those are actually beautiful PDFs. And they're not just PDFs, they're searchable PDFs. Isn't that awesome? Now, I wanna circle back on screenshotting of long form content. I started with Safari, but it works in some other Apple apps as well. When you take a screenshot in Apple Notes or Mail, it does something really interesting. The screen tab presents the full screenshot, and that would include, you know, the sidebars in Mail or, or Apple Notes like you would expect because you took a picture of the screen. But if you switch to the full page tab, you only get the specific note or mail message you were viewing when you took the shot. I think that's some brilliant work right there to separate it out like that. Now, I started digging into uh, deeper into Apple apps, and I couldn't get long form in the Home app or the Stocks or Apple TV app, but it does work in Numbers and Pages and even Keynote. 
I couldn't believe how quickly it converted a 50-page keynote deck into a PDF. I wasn't able to find any non-Apple apps that had the capability to do the PDF conversion of long-form content, but I don't know definitively that they can't. I wrote to a development buddy of mine, and he believes that this feature is Apple only. I'm going to give you a bonus tip about markup that many of you may have figured out already, but most people I show it to have never noticed it was there. Let's take you say you take a screenshot to send to your friend, and you want to make sure they see the one thing in the screenshot you've been trying to explain to them. Most people use the marker or the crayon to furiously scrubble around the thing they want me to see, and they send it on to me. But there are much more elegant ways to focus someone's attention, and the way to get there is hiding in plain sight. When you take a screenshot, the markup tools available are a pen, a highlighter, a crayon, and an eraser. Next is this funny-looking pencil with diagonal lines on it. That funny pencil is actually a selection tool, so you can sort of draw around an annotation you've created, and it puts a tight selection ring around it and allows you to drag it around. There's also a straight edge, which pretends to be a ruler by having little marks on it, but you can't measure anything with it. But it is nice to have a straight edge for drawing. You can twist it with two fingers and draw nice straight lines. But none of that has to do with what I'm going to tell you about trying to draw people's attention. To the right of the colors you can choose to make your angry scribbles is a little plus button. If you tap that, you get several more tools. The tools I use all the time are the box, circle, and arrow, and sometimes the thought bubble if I'm feeling playful. But the arrow in particular is more useful than you might think. As soon as you select it, a long red arrow will just plop right into the middle of the screen. You can change the length and drag the endpoints around, of course, but notice that there's a green dot in the middle. You can drag that dot around and the arrow becomes an arced line instead of straight. That's super useful in getting the point of the arrow where you need it, but then making sure the line itself doesn't obscure something else important in the screenshot. With the arrow you just plopped down on screen still selected, you can change the color with one of the options at the bottom, but you'll notice another button on the far left side has appeared. It has a solid dark circle beneath a square. Tap that and you'll see options to change the arrow line to a plain line or a double-ended arrow line. And you can also change the line thickness from this menu. If you make rectangles and circles, this same button lets you make them filled shapes or change the stroke thickness. I'm going to confess right now, I never noticed this little menu button before. The plus button has even more features up its sleeve. You can add a text box or your signature and also a magnifier. Adding a magnifier puts a circle on screen with the area inside the circle just slightly magnified. There's a blue dot on the circle when drag, uh, that when dragged in and out will change the diameter of the magnified area. But also notice there's a green dot on the top of the circle. If you rotate that green dot clockwise to the right, the image inside the circle increases in magnification. Isn't that better than your angry scribbles you were doing before? Now, remember earlier when I said that only iPad OS has the opacity slider? I was wrong about that. On iPhone, in addition to the tools I've described under the plus button, they've also included the opacity slider. Guess they just didn't have room for it on the main screen. I also figured out a problem the opacity slider solves. Annotations are unaffected by the change in opacity. So that means if you use the magnifier to draw focus to an area of the screenshot, you can really make it pop by sliding to the right to lower the opacity of the rest of the image. This is particularly dramatic if you were using dark mode when you took your screenshot. 
Now, remember when we were talking about how you could view multiple screenshots and markup at the same time? And I said that on an iPhone, it shows you dots to indicate multiple screenshots, but I didn't actually mention that the dots show up on iPad OS. I was careful to word it that way because on iPad OS, the markup tools cover up the dot where that area where the dots would be. But there's one more hidden gem in the markup toolbox on iPad OS. To the right of the plus sign that reveals the arrows and other geometry is a button with three dots inside it. When selected, it reveals a little toggle labeled Auto Minimize. If you turn on Auto Minimize, the entire palette of tools scoots off to the left, leaving a circle showing just the currently selected tool. You can now see the dots indicating the multiple screenshots. It's also nice to scoot the tools out of the way because they actually cover part of the screenshot image in their natural position. As I said up front, I love taking and annotating screenshots, so I really enjoyed discovering so many cool features in markup on iOS and iPadOS. Perhaps you knew some of these features, but if you're like me, some of them were an absolute revelation. I have to say, I had a lot of fun doing an article here on a topic probably close to 100% of the people listening would actually learn something. You know, it's not my style to do that. I like to pick these obscure topics that the fewest number of people can enjoy. Anyway, I bet even David Roth learned something here. Hi. Okay, that's information, entertainment, and community. What's that worth to you? Why, thanks for asking, Frank. Maybe I could give the audience some ideas. You learned about how to save your phone screen with a Diamond Dog tempered glass screen protector. And no, they are not a sponsor. And you learned some cool new tricks in iOS markup. And after this, you're going to hear about how to protect yourself and your loved ones during security bits. Do you think you'll learn or were you entertained a dollar's worth? Maybe you could consider going to podfeet.com Patreon and pledging said dollar a week to support the show. Now back to you, Frank. Oh, thank you very much. You have a great day and hope to see you again soon. Well, it's that time of the week again. It is time for Security Bits with Bart Shots. Looks like we've got some uh, deep dives this week, huh? Yeah, they're in, they're called deep dives because they're more than a bullet point, but they're shallow-ish, so watch your nose in the bottom of the pool. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Um, I think that's a viable analogy. Um, as per usual, some follow-up from previous stories before we get stuck into uh, stuff that's more new to us. Uh, probably goes without saying, remain vigilant. Nasty, evil, bad guys continue to make use of the fact that we're going through icky times. Uh, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. If it's pulling on your heartstrings, be careful. You're being, you may be being manipulated. Uh, yeah, the hard part is there's so much real stuff pulling at your heartstrings. We're more vulnerable than ever, huh? Yeah, and particularly in the US, there seems to be an awful lot of fraud targeted at the CARES Act relief, which is ever so slightly important to a couple of million people. Uh, so that's very very disheartening. I don't think I know what the CARES Act relief is. It's, must be lucky it's the name know. they gave the the unemployment and basically it's oh, the, the name they money? gave the yeah, the money that's keeping oh, okay. people literally fed. Ugh. Okay. It's so important and of course they're going after it. Ugh. 
Dregs okay. of mankind. Okay. Uh, the exposure notification contact tracing, obviously that is going to continue to develop. Big development, though, since last we spoke, is iOS 13.5 has been released, and with it, the API, is, Apple and Google's API, is now live. Um, it's live-ish because the API without an app is potential rather than actual functionality, right? The API is there waiting to be interacted with, but the apps are still lagging behind. But again, everyone's frantically working on it. So I'm sure they will, by the time we're talking two weeks from now, I'm sure that will have changed. And in fact, the Swiss won the race. So if you live in Switzerland, you can use the API. Uh, rest of us. they not. have the app? They, yeah, they were first, and Latvia looked like they're going to be second. So I, I have a question. I saw a whole lot of, like, several different sites talking about the fact that Utah of the states had decided not to use the uh, Google Apple API for uh, exposure notification. Mm -hmm. And so I immediately warned my friends who were there that, oh, I think this is going to be bad, and I really feel badly that you're not going to be able to use the good one. And then I recently looked, and I don't know why Utah got called out. There's only four states who've said they're going to use it. There's a, yeah, there's there's a lot of it's slow to develop. Yeah, well, I mean, they're they're saying lots of them saying no. It's like ah, yeah, and they're all going to not work. So they're all going to have the experience Australia had, where they tried it. The they tried to do it themselves, ignoring the realities of the Bluetooth API, mm -hmm. and then it didn't work. And then they're going, oh, I guess we should have listened to all of those experts. It's I was just really uh, surprised. I don't know why they called out uh, Utah so much. It's all like, you know, it's like, no, there's way more st states being stupid, like most of them. But maybe yeah, and countries, yeah, yeah. big countries like the UK and yeah. And uh, North Dakota then also, I think, went their own and they ended up calling the Foursquare API from their <gasps> contact tracing app. Oh, Foursquare is like, yeah. definition of tracking your location, right? That's its job, yeah. Yeah. That is raison d'etre. Yeah, wow. So the UK have put the skids on their app. It's delayed until sometime in June uh, because they did a trial of it on the Isle of Wight and lo and behold, it didn't work when the thing wasn't in the foreground. Could have told you that. Saved mm. you a bit of hassle, a bit of embarrassment, but there we go. Um, and five EU countries sent a letter that didn't mention either Apple or Google by name, but still did an awful lot of finger wagging without saying very much. Hmm. Okay. Um, there was also a space. plethora. Sorry? Watch this space. <laughs> to a very large extent, yes. Uh, one thing I do want to draw attention to is there was a plethora of just plain old factual nonsense doing the rounds on Facebook, saying that if you install iOS 13.5, your phone immediately is tracking you and sending your GPS location to your government. It's like, no, that's actually the opposite of the whole point of this API. Yeah. Ugh. So Apple responded quite strongly by saying, no, 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 all this stuff on Facebook is nonsense. So just to say, if you've seen this stuff shared on Facebook, you're right, it is nonsense. So good. Hmm. Video conferencing apps continue to update themselves wildly. Um, our newfound friends at Zoom are moving forward. They have... As we record now, today's the 31st, so as of yesterday, they are using their shiny new uh, encryption protocol. Yeah. And they have done a very clever thing, and they have implemented the new encryption without fallback to the old, because fallback is a terrible thing hackers abuse to trick people into having insecure conversations. Hmm. So 
either you update your apps or you use the web interface or you don't Zoom. You oh, wow. cannot use the old apps with the new encryption. So let me ask a question. Are they, is this a publicly viewable encryption scheme or did they do something private? I don't know exactly what's public and private, but I, I believe it was audited. Okay. So I'm not entirely sure exactly what, how much is public and how much is private, but it's not open source. We certainly haven't seen the source code, but it's transparent, if that helps. Okay. Um, Apple have tweaked group FaceTime as part of the iOS updates that just came out. You don't have to have that annoying thing where the person, what is talking's face keeps on growing and shrinking. You can now oh, turn that off. Thank goodness. But only on iOS they fixed it? I, I don't know for sure. I know it is fixed on iOS. I don't know if it's only on iOS. I have to say, I've been so disappointed in FaceTime in this whole group thing. Uh, I, I, you know, I tried to use it originally and it was just like, first of all, irpy, right? Because it keeps moving in and out. Uh, but second of all, it was like somebody always couldn't get in. And, you know, I tried blaming Steve, but then it happened to me. And then so last night we thought, OK, we're going to try it again because we'd just been on a mm-hmm. Zoom call with the, uh, our kids and a bunch of other people. We wanted to Zoom, just talk to them. And I was like, OK, we'll just use FaceTime. And I invited everybody in, and that worked great. And then I needed to change my headphones. I was immediately kicked out of it and could not get back in, but everybody else was still in. It's like, oh, come oh. on. And I mean, Zoom, it's just like you just go in and out, in and out. It's super easy. Apple has really yeah, dropped the ball on this. It's a pity. Yeah. 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 Um, Instagram has video chat support for up to 50 people. That's pretty impressive. Hmm. Skype has gone to a three by three grid. So nine doesn't seem as impressive when you hear that Instagram has gone to 50 people in a call. But I guess the (laughs) three by three is not the number of people. It's the number you see at once. So maybe. Oh, okay. Okay. I still don't want to talk to 50 people. No. (laughs) Well, if you're giving a lecture, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And Facebook is testing an audio calling app, which they're calling Catch Up which I find very ironic because that's what they're playing. (laughs) Well, don't they own Instagram? True, true. But they do seem to want to have a branded Facebook thing as well. Catch up. Maybe maybe they mean like, you know, catching up. Can we catch up together? I guess that's the logic. Yeah. Yeah. Let's catch up. Um, not quite video messaging, but kind of related. Seems like a sensible place to pop it in the show notes. Um, signal secure messaging. You now don't have to use a phone number as the unique identifier, so you can use Signal without oh. without ha- people having to know your phone number. That's good. So that's, yeah, it is good actually. Yeah, yeah I'm kind of surprised that wasn't there. Yeah, that's sort of a bit like um, WhatsApp. I think signal the signal app used the phone number as as the way of identifying people, but they've they've expanded beyond that. Yeah. And then there's just a helpful article from Intigo.com, how to improve your Zoom, Skype, or FaceTime call experience. It's just a bunch of practical stuff. I hope it, is, it starts with mute everybody. It does oh, exactly all that kind of stuff. And I, this is the kind of link I like to keep in my back pocket to help others more than because I've learned something new. Yeah, I I was on this, it was a wine tasting call, which was super fun, but uh, it was, I think, like 12 people, and uh, Lindsay and Nolan were on it, and Lindsay immediately texted me and goes, well, this is going to be a disaster, because the audio was horrible, and then the person running it just went, and by the way, we're going to mute everybody, and we all went, yay! (laughs) Yay! 
So did you get a list to go shopping with and then everyone went and bought their own copies, if, if you excuse the phrase, of of the wine? Oh, no, no, no. This was uh, this was gratis. The vin- the vintner sent it to us. Well, actually, the person Ooh. running the person running the wine tasting did. Oh, wow. So you, you all got like free wine and then a chat. Yeah. Yeah. And they taught us Ooh, about the vineyard and stuff. It was like going to a wine tasting, except we didn't have to pay anything. It's very fun. The only, the only problem with it was it started at four. <laughs> Ask yeah, me, yard arm, and, and it was two bottles of wine for the two of us. So uh, I was I was pretty much worthless by six. Sounds and, fun on a Saturday. I guess, yeah. Went to bed at nine. <laughs> <laughs> True. Um, also, we talked last time about uh, renewal of the Patriot Act almost cutting out the provision for warrantless web searching in the Senate. Well, that bill has now moved to the House. And there have, basically, there's another opportunity to stop the warrantless uh, browser history searches. So uh, the large tech companies in the US have gotten together to fight it in the House. So maybe so, time you want to email your Congress critter if you're a US voter. You usually know stuff about my government that I don't, so I'll ask you. I'm used to it starting in the House and going to the Senate, and the Senate always says no to everything the House wanted. I didn't know it could go the other way around. It can start in the Senate, go to the House, and they can change it? My understanding is that what needs to happen is that whether it starts in one or the other, they both have to vote on something that's compatible before it goes to the president. Oh, okay. Okay. So they'd have to be in some sort of agreement at the end. There's something called a, a reconciliation that happens when they pass different versions of bills. They have to they have to basically average them, and then they both have to vote again on the new okay mushed bill. Just to everybody listening, than. whenever I have a question about the way the House and Senate work, I ask Bart. <laughs> I, I I'm nerdy about how government works. Yeah, because to me it's just a machine, and it has rules. It's an algorithm. Anyway, um. And then lastly, in the follow-up, our friends at Clearview AI are getting sued again, uh, this time by the ACLU. So they're they're not having an easy time of thing. Good. Our first deep dive, I decided to do first, so I didn't have to talk about it for long. Um, The Apple versus US government, I don't know what we call it, battle, kerfuffle, face-off. What does Ken Ray call it? He's got a name for it. Encryptopalooza gate or something? Yeah, something like that. We'll go with that. So that another round has kicked off. So the FBI revealed that they had succeeded in cracking the iPhones belonging to the Pensacola naval base shooter. And that was an opportunity to attack Apple. Uh, because they succeeded despite the fact that Apple didn't do it for them, which they couldn't because that's how math works. Um. Both the director of the FBI and the attorney general made some statements, which I will politely describe as being misleading. And that is the politest I can bring myself to be. Yeah. Um, they basically said that Apple refused to help them because they were protecting the privacy of their customers. But the actual reality is that they can't help them because the lock is actually secure and there is no back door. And the reason the lock exists is not about privacy, it's about security, and it's not about hiding stuff from governments, it's about protecting us from criminals, which is an extremely different message to Apple are keeping stuff private is a different thing to Apple are protecting you from criminals. That's not the same thing. Right. So the analogy I would make is, we all remember Wild West movies from when we were kids. Um, 
you can't crack a safe because that's the only way that safe can be safe. But as a side effect of that, because no one can get into the safe, neither can the sheriff. Mm-hmm. It's not designed to keep the sheriff out. It's designed to keep the bandits out. It just so happens that if you can't get in, you can't get in. Right. And if anyone can get in, then everyone can get in. So you can't have backdoors. That's sort of what it comes down to. Uh, Apple pushed back very strongly because the government characterized Apple as refusing to cooperate, which is a very strong it's a very strong thing to have said about you um, by your government, particularly if you're if you are from that country, right? And, and Apple and they had done a bunch of stuff. They just exactly didn't do the, because why the Apple last was thing. really quick. Like, not only did we cooperate, we did so within hours, and we sent you everything we have. We sent you all the metadata. We sent you all the logs. We sent you everything from iCloud that isn't encrypted. Like, we we handed over everything we could, and we did it really, really quickly. We were really helpful. Yeah. Just because so we that didn't break really something sad. that can never be unbroken. Yeah, it's anyway. So yeah, so th- there's more links to show notes. I don't, I don't enjoy this story, but it is important that we mention its existence. I guess. Yeah. Deep dive number two: the BIOS Bluetooth attack. Um, oh, apparently I called it an attach. Yeah, I, I saw that, and I was going to ask you about that because uh, I couldn't tell if it was a typo or not. So I thought it might be attack. Yeah, it's attack or vulnerability. Take your pick. Okay. Um, some security researchers have found a problem not with someone's implementation of Bluetooth, which is how these things usually go, but with the actual spec. So there's actually a line in the paper that says that this attack works against a fully standards compliant Bluetooth implementation. Yeah, that Don't doesn't sound good. Exactly. So what the attack allows, or the weakness that they discovered, the problem with the spec, what it allows is for an attacker to impersonate a previously paired device and connect directly to your phone or whatever it is that they're within Bluetooth range of. And then whatever access that device has, they have. So if they impersonate your Apple Watch, that gives them fairly deep access into your data because your Apple Watch can read all sorts of things. Uh, but I guess if they impersonate your your AirPods, they see less. But nonetheless, being able to just impersonate any previously paired device is very not good. Don't they have to be standing right next to you to do this? That is the silver lining. Okay. It is within Bluetooth range. So if I can... If you're sitting in a, conference, right? in a conference hall for three hours. Oh, none of us yeah. are doing that anymore anyway, so... Yeah, social distancing <laughs> does help with this Bluetooth vulnerability. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess, okay, so the immediate what can we do to protect ourselves is if you don't use Bluetooth, turn it off would be the first thing. And if you're going somewhere that you think is a bit dangerous, like say you're going to DEF CON or something, or you're crossing a border, international borders would be obviously places to beware. Mm -hmm. Maybe turn off Bluetooth and or power down your phone for that particular little bit of exposure. And then know that the rest of the time you are vulnerable and there's nothing you can do to patch yourself within Bluetooth range. Going forward, the group who managed the Bluetooth spec, so they're called Bluetooth SIG, they have special released a statement. Group. Special interest group. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, they've released a statement saying, we're aware of this vulnerability it is real and we are working on an updated spec. And so they will okay. then publish that spec at some stage. And when they've published it, then everyone has to write new firmware. 
and then they can push the new firmware out to us and then we'll all be good. So this will get solved, but not tomorrow. So probably faster than when we're allowed to go out of our houses. <laughs> I don't know which to wish for there. <laughs> well, wish for is different. I wish for allowed out of our house much sooner, but it, realistically, I think even a uh, even a Bluetooth consortium could do it faster than we'll be allowed out. So uh, we'll probably be okay then. On the balance of probability, you're probably correct, but I'm going to wistfully assume you're wrong. Yay! Okay. <laughs> okay. Deep dive number the third then is the latest iOS jailbreak uncover with an O and sorry a zero instead of an O. Yeah. Uh, just days after the release of iOS 13.5, a new jailbreak has been released that will jailbreak any iOS device running a currently supported version of iOS. Is that uh, bad news or good news? Uh, means they found yeah. a bug to exploit, right? Yeah, so yes would be my answer to that. So, <laughs> Okay. There's plenty of... This is not as dramatic as it sounds to this story. So the first thing is just to say that th this bug depends on a bug in the iOS kernel. Uh, so Apple are obviously going to reverse engineer this jailbreak very quickly, and that bug is going to get patched, and the next version of iOS to come out will almost certainly close that hole off. Okay. Now, the bug is such that it can't be exploited remotely. So you need to have the victim device tethered to a computer running special software via USB in order to trigger this bug and hence do the jailbreak. Hmm. So you're not in danger of being attacked by email or over the web or anything like that or across the network or over Bluetooth even, right? It has to be a USB hardwire. So this isn't dangerous to people who don't do it to themselves. And jailbreaking has many security implications, yada, yada, yada. Uh, it also doesn't survive a reboot. So oh, if you were to be crossing a border or something where you might lose physical control of your phone, obviously they could jailbreak it with this jailbreak, put a keylogger on it and give the phone back to you. But if you reboot the phone, then that's that takes care of that. So all silver linings. Oh, good. Um, so really, it's not that dramatic except for the fact that it came out very quickly, so it's probably a case that iOS 13.5 was a bit rushed. Was, I forget, was there any reason iOS 13.5 was pushed out, like, to fix some other problem and they did this? Uh, well, iOS 13.5 was pushed out to give us the exposure notification API. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay. So I think that probably counts as rushing. Yeah, so that, I mean, unless you have any more questions, I guess that that's sort of where we are with the un Uncover Jailbreak. It's not that dramatic a story, really. Yeah. And maybe people will have fun jailbreaking for 10 minutes, both of them that are still doing that. Uh, security researchers are loving it because it means they can get root access and really, really poke at the innards of iOS. And I like it when security experts are happy. That, that, you know, yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, action alerts. Apple have updated lots of their operating systems. Patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Uh, iOS 13.5. You get some bonuses there. You also, one of the things they put into 13.5 is face mask detection, so that when it detects that your face is covered, it will immediately give you the password entry fields um, you know, instead I of. I forgot that that was coming, and the other day I did it, and I was like, whoa! It was like, yay! It was, I, I realized, I said, like, wow, that was instantaneous, that I didn't have to fuss around waiting for it. Yeah, I mean, grocery shopping is still stressful, but it's that teeny bit stre stress lessful. Less stressful. Less stressful than it was last week. Yeah, yeah, every little bit. I'll take it. 
Uh, also updates for macOS, uh, Safari, and iCloud for Windows. And the macOS bug, oh, sorry, the macOS update contains an APFS bug, which is affecting bootable backups made with stuff like Carbon Copy Cloner. Wait a minute, it includes a, a bug or it removes a yeah. bug? No, I'm afraid it has introduced a bug that affects <laughs> what bootable it, backup. What does it do to it? Does it mean you can't boot from your backup drive? Yes. If you made it using something like Carbon Copy Cloner, which obviously is what you want, right? So you can still clone from it in terms of using a, a rest- you know, the only way you can restore using Migration Assistant. You just you can't can boot, you just won't be able to boot from it? Yeah, which is not what you want if you've gone to the trouble of making a bootable backup. So yeah, be aware. Okay. Oh, so in the link you sent to Mac Observer, it was actually Mike Bombick, the creator of Carbon Copy Cloner, who discovered this bug. Yep. Presumably because he eats his own dog food. And well, or someone in his lab was obviously testing features, right? That's that's their bread and butter. Yeah. Oh, I don't know whether I want to do that then. If you rely on bootable clones, you may. Well, I don't know if I'm going to, do I? Because <laughs> I might tomorrow. I guess. So to me, I would say in case of disaster, you're not completely scuppered. Because, because of migration assistant? from it. You just can't boot from it. Uh, okay, okay. It doesn't destroy the data. I mean, could the you do a, a complete reinstall of everything with it without booting from it? I thought you had to boot from it in order to do that. Maybe I'm well, wrong. No, you boot the recovery partition, then you tell us, you tell migration assistant, grab the data from that hard drive over yeah. there. Okay, all right. Probably it do doesn't wipe the hard drive or anything catastrophic, it just won't boot it. Okay. Uh, Adobe have released an out-of-band critical patch, so uh, it, it's it's for more of their creative apps rather than for Flash for change. Um, but if you're if you use Adobe's Creative Suite, you may or may not have an affected app installed as your particular subset of that suite. They are being really tight-lipped about what is fixed, but they've released it out-of-band, which implies it's important. Mm-hmm. And. Finally, a heads up for our nerdier listeners. Docker is a mechanism for containerization, and Docker has a desktop app to let you play with your containers on a desktop. And that desktop app has a really, really nasty security bug in it. So if you are a Docker user on your laptop or whatever, I imagine there's more people doing that than usual because you're working from home instead of being you know, in the office with giant big servers and stuff. Uh, patchy, patchy, patch, patch your Docker. Okay. Where are the warnings then? Uh, Edison Mail allowed access to... So there's a bug in Edison Mail allowed access to other people's email accounts temporarily. It's fixed now. (laughs) But if you're an Edison user and there's something really sensitive in your mail, be aware that that you may want to read the article. And In the list of things you want your email to do, giving your email to other people might not be near the top of that list. Or, in fact, if you had the inverse list of things you want your email not to do, it will be quite close to the top. Jeez. Yeah, bad. Um, another one for our nerdier listeners. Um, if you are a user of Microsoft's Azure, 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 however you're pronouncing it, and I've heard Microsoft people say it each of those three ways, <laughs> if you're a user of those cool cloudy things from Microsoft, Microsoft are rolling out a shiny new update give you a nicer new login screen while the fishers are making use of the fact that there's a change and people aren't people are expecting to not see quite what they saw before 
And they're using that as an opportunity to do attacks, phishing attacks, basically, against people's Azure infrastructure. And Azure is where all of your VMs and stuff are if you're using it. And that could be really, really dangerous. So if you're an admin of a company that uses Azure, just be extra vigilant. You're expecting it not to look like it looked last week. Just make sure it's still Microsoft. Oh, wow. Huh. Okay. Notable news then, there is a nasty bug in Android that's quite similar to a nasty bug they had in Android a few years ago. So it's called Strandhug 2.0, being the follow-on from Strandhug from a few years ago. This vulnerability allows a malicious app to basically present itself as being a legitimately installed app. So it sort of imagine it as like an invisible skin on top of the real app. And it can intercept all of your clicks and things and everything you're doing in the real app, which is just a very, very dangerous place for malware to be able to sit. Uh, It's in Android 8 and 9, not in Android 10, but apparently Android 10 is not particularly widely deployed yet. It was patched in the May update, but the only phones who have the May update yet are the Google branded phones. So everyone else needs to sit and wait and cross their fingers until they get to have the security update that Google have already made public and that the bad guys can already start reverse engineering and then update yourself as soon as you can, if you can. Oh, but it's okay, because you can update Android phones immediately as soon as you, get, uh, you hear about a patch like this. Oh, wait, no, you can't. I know, yeah. It's, I, it, it was the wrong model. It's still the wrong model. I wish they'd picked a different model. No time machine. <laughs> Our gray hat friends at Grey Key. Uh, have had or have been selling a tool for the last year, but they've been keeping it very secret because it's rather sneaky. Uh, it's called Hide UI, but they were u- they were using an NDA to try to keep it secret from the public forever, but that has eventually leaked out. Uh, what it does is it installs a keylogger onto an iOS device that they can't crack. So the idea with Gray Key is that you take an iOS device, your law enforcement or whatever, you shove it into this device from Gray Key, and it will try to brute force its way through your passcode. And if it succeeds, obviously law enforcement get into the phone. But they have an extra option for law enforcement now where they can shove it into the Gray Key. It will use some sort of exploit we don't know about, which may or may not work on all versions of iOS. It may only work on some. We don't really have any of those details. But on at least some iPhones, there is a security vulnerability, or there was a security vulnerability at some point in time, which allows Gray Key to stick a keylogger onto the phone. Law enforcement then hand the phone back to the person and trick them into unlocking their phone, and then take the phone off them again and shove it back in the Gray Key, and then the Gray Key will say, and the password they typed was blah, blah, blah. Huh. So there are oversight issues with this kind of stuff being done in secret by law enforcement. So um, the one piece of that is, how how are they able to booby trap the device with a keylogger? There's obviously, they're obviously using a security exploit of some sort. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. But whatever that vulnerability is, it's obviously not giving them decryption of the sensitive parts of the hard disk, because then they could just get by the lock screen. Okay. So that it's a vulnerability that gives them a foothold or a toehold, but doesn't completely take over the phone. And we have no idea, like I say, well, maybe it only affects phones that haven't been patched in 10 years, or maybe it affects every single iPhone up to 15, like iOS 13.5. We genuinely have no idea. But we know at least some phones, this works. Hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, Google have released Chrome 83. It has a bunch of new privacy tweaks and it joins the DNS over HTTPS club. Yay. So oh. it had support as a preview feature that you could enable if you wanted, but now it's got mainstream support for DNS over HTTPS. So we continue to march forward in that privacy protecting technology. Excellent. Facebook have done something very interesting, which they're calling safety alerts. And they're doing this in preparation for switching to end-to-end encryption. So when we move to end-to-end encryption, Facebook are going to lose visibility of what you say. But of course, they will never lose visibility into who, what, when, where. Basically, into the metadata around the conversations you have. So they will know who you're talking to, when you're talking to them, how much. You said they will know who you're talking to? They they do, and they will continue to, is maybe a better way of saying it. Right? Okay, and this is Facebook Messenger, by the way. Yes. So how is that so, end-to-end so, encryption if they knew who I'm talking to, how long I'm talking to them? They just don't know what right. I'm saying? No, they won't know what you're saying. So that's what the end-to-end encryption gives you, right? Because they're, okay. they're basically... They're facilitating the exchange of encrypted information between users of their platform. But the only way the message can get from my phone to your phone... Well, from my phone, it won't get anywhere because there's no Facebook installed. But from one phone to another phone is by Facebook doing that handing off, right? So Facebook have to always know the metadata around these conversations. It's also one of the reasons why this whole move to ending to end encryption is so silly, because most of what law enforcement want is actually metadata, and that's that's always going to be there anyway. But that's a separate discussion. Uh, Facebook have started to use this metadata with AI to detect potentially dangerous situations. And so they won't know what you're saying, but they'll still be able to detect that there's something potentially phishing going on. And so even in a world of end-to-end encryption, they will still be able to give you warnings about things like people who may be sexual predators. Because you don't have to know what someone is saying to recognize a pattern of an adult regularly contacting kids with which they've had no previous relationship. That pattern is suspicious, even if you can never see a single character of the conversation. Yeah, and so that's interesting. Yeah, so they've now added their AI, and they will proactively give you a warning when you get a, a Facebook Messenger message from a person that they think is suspicious because of the metadata, basically, in the AI, and tell you, hey, this person looks like they might be dodgy. And then you are armed with that information. That's kind Another of one that interesting, though, how they know how old the person that person's talking to. Well, I think Facebook will ask you your age as part of the sign up. And even if they don't ask you your age, they have a pretty darn good guess of your age based on all the Everything profiling else. they do with you. Yeah. 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 That's their business, right? Well, it used to, be in theory, you, you. used to be in theory you couldn't be under 13, but I think they've got like Facebook kids now, so they can. Yeah, they they finally decided to comply with COPA instead of going la 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 la. <laughs> or they were told to is probably a fairer way of saying that. Um, another one that was very interesting that I thought, oh, that's clever. They are looking out for the pattern of someone messaging you who's never messaged you before, whose name is similar to an old friend. Oh. Very clever. So, I mean, they have all this data. They're using it to make money. I like when they also let us have some benefit from it. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I I don't know if I told everybody, but I got a uh, 
uh, on Telegram, if somebody in your contacts shows up, you get a little notification that so-and-so has joined Telegram. And uh, it told me that Honda Bob had joined Telegram. So but, his phone number is yeah, finding you like. I ended up chatting with a person and he sounded lovely and he said, oh, I wish I'd known him. <laughs> it was like a real nice Aww. little conversation. Yeah, it was, it was kind of sweet. So That's a um, lovely human touch that makes up for all those naughty people abusing COVID to scam people. That, that, thank you, Alison. I really needed that. Oh, good. Um, very interesting court case in the US. Now, this is at the lowest level of the federal judicial system. So this is the lowest federal court. So it's a district court, which means it's two steps away from the Supreme Court. So this probably is going upstream at some stage. But anyway, this low-level federal court, the judge ruled that looking at a lock screen without a warrant is unconstitutional under the Fourth Amendment. I saw that. That's interesting. I mean, I'm sure it'll get overturned, but still. It's very interesting. Like I say, this is the, the, I actually did a bit of digging to check exactly where this court was in the pecking order. I was expecting to find it at the bottom of the heap, and that's where it is. It, it is the lowest level court. So, yeah, overturn seems likely. But it's one to keep an eye on. Yeah. Another story I don't want to spend a lot of time on, but I do want to give you the resources to educate yourself if you so desire. There's a kerfuffle and a half between the White House and Twitter at the moment. Yes, it revolves is. around the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. The EFF and all judicial precedent have a very different view of the law and the effects of the executive order than the administration does. And it is my honest opinion that the EFF's lawyers and all of U.S. case law is probably right. If you guys Details want, in show notes. Yeah, we, uh, we're definitely not going to get into it because there's no bigger hot button in the world than this. But um, if uh, if you want a really interesting balanced view, this uh, most of this week, Tom Merritt has been covering this issue on uh, Daily Tech News Show. I think it was Wednesday was when he started, Tuesday Wednesday. And, and he did a great job of saying, OK, pretend for just a moment. If you like the current administration, pretend it's someone you don't. And if you don't like them, pretend it's someone you do. And now let's just go through the facts of what does that law say? What what does it mean? How were these rules applied? And and he talks very, very uh, dispassionately, as only Tom Merritt can, about what Twitter did, what Facebook's approach has been, what the law said. And it's not political at all. It's a really, really interesting. Only Tom could do that. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the phrase Patrick Beja used to, de- oh, to describe Tom. It's something like patholog- fanatic. Pathologically uh, non-inflammatory or something like that. Yeah, I have so much respect for you know for Tom because he is able to do that so well. Like, I also I think he's a freak of nature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> A similar, obviously, I don't like as much as anything Tom does, Tom, Tom rocks. But if you're also looking for an, uh, an additional good explainer, the Reset podcast did an episode on it. It's about 20 minutes long. And again, it's very much by the book. Here's the facts. Here's how it goes. So I think if you're interested in getting to the, to the heart of what, what this actually means, the EFF's link is a good overview of the, the laws, the Constitution, the previous cases, the technical technocratic is that the right word maybe yeah the technicalities of it i will listen to anything tom says and the reset podcast is very good 
Good, good. By the way, I didn't mean anything disrespectful when I said Tom pathologically uninflammable or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's like, man, I just wish I was a freak of nature like him. But I'm not. That's why we don't go into it. And likewise, I aspire to such levels of dispassion, and I know I will fail. Therefore, I sidestep the problem. We just want to be Tom when we grow up. Let's be honest. Okay. Uh, And in a related note that is not happy making, uh, Twitter have updated their privacy policy. Uh, They're giving more data to their advertisers. They're quite quiet about it. I have one top tip to share with you. The good people at the Mac Observer have given a little how-to on a new tool by Google to help educate people on how to spot online scams. Again, this is more the kind of link to keep in your back pocket for friends and family who ask you, well, how how do I tell the difference between something real and something dangerous? This this tool from Google helps educate you and the Mac Observer sort of help you get to grips with it. Hey, I have a hot off the presses update here. Um, I followed the link to Mac Observer uh, where that was talking about the uh, bug in macOS 10.15.5 and the bootable uh-huh. backups and Mike Bombic. And then I followed the link to his actual blog and he says he's fixed it in Carbon Copy Cloner 5.1.18. It now deals with it correctly with the, the change that macOS 10.15.5 did. That is superb because a lot, a lot of people rely on Carbon Copy Cloner. Yeah, so go ahead and update to macOS 10.15.5. There might be other bugs. We don't know. (laughs) Yeah, of everything we know, you're all good. Um, Excellent explainers, then. I have one I do want to link to. Uh, What is the dark web? Your questions answered in plain English. Again, interesting to read. And also one to keep in your back pocket for when you're asked that question by friends and family. And then finally, interesting insights. I really enjoyed an article by Naked Security sort of explaining what is in the digital toolbox of a modern ransomware gang. Because in the olden days, it was basically they send out a million emails. They figure 1% of people will click on it. 1% of those people will get affected by the malware. 1% of those people will pay the ransom, which means you send out a million emails, you probably make a million bucks. Hmm. But nowadays, it's way, 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 way more advanced. And the toolbox basically has actually encrypting people's file as like one teeny tiny box in this massive chart of all the tools they use. Because what they do now is they wheedle their way in They find out where your most sensitive data is. They find out where your backups are. They destroy your backups. They encrypt your most sensitive data immediately. And they just do a surgical strike where everything happens all at once within a second. And how they do that and the tools they use is what the blog post describes. And it's fascinating and makes me very happy that I'm not a chief security information officer in a large (laughs) corporation. Okay, palate cleansing after all that. Um... I have two, and I don't see. I, I don't know if you have one to add. I don't. Um, yesterday, America did something rather cool. In fact, Elon Musk did something rather cool. In the world's, well, I'll go out and say it: the world's sexiest spacesuits. <laughs> we America sent two human beings all the way into Earth orbit from the ground in an American rocket. Successfully. First time in nine years. Yeah, I, I, I took some time to watch. I, I managed to miss the actual launch, but let's go there. Um, 
I, I watched some videos of it afterwards. What a what a perfect like. Yeah, I cried. I cried when that yeah. the launch happened. Uh, right before Bart and I got in the air, the Crew Dragon successfully docked to the International Space Station, and they walked through into the other side. Um, I I caught a quick video of it as they opened the hatch between the two. And I did it using the display on my Tesla. So I sat in my Tesla watching YouTube, <laughs> watching NASA's Space Channel and watching them go do it. I love that. That is a wonderful touch. I um, and unfortunately, because that just happened, your cool little tip doesn't work anymore. Uh, Bart was oh. about to tell us that you could see the Crew Dragon pass overhead. If you go to the Heavens Above link you sent, it says it's now docked to the ISS. Use ISS predictions from now on. So technically, okay. yes. <laughs> so you're still going to see it. So the ISS will be a little bit brighter and there will come a time, and I believe the mission is open-ended, but there will come a time when they undock from the ISS, at which point this link comes back into its own. And at that point, you have what's called a space chase because it actually takes quite a bit of time for the two spacecraft to move physically apart in space. Oh, okay, cool. And so you'll see one come over and then trailing behind it in the sky the other. So this link, it was cool between yesterday and now, and it will be cool again between whenever they unplug the hatch and whenever they land safely in the, I think the ocean. Shortest is, yeah, they're going to land in the ocean. I think the um, shortest is 90 days. It's 90 to some bigger number, which is either 110 yeah, now, days or 210 days, depending on how you read what they wrote. And now that they've done all of the... You know, the, the, the bits where things are potential to go wrong, right? The launch, the rendezvous, and the docking. I mean, th those are the three difficult parts. Well, Getting the off the ground part is is the space and connecting to each other. All done. They've shaken hands with the with their friends on the International Space Station. So there's no reason for them to, to head home early now, right? They're, they're up there having a good mission. Yeah. It, it actually turned out that that uh, docking procedure was much more dangerous than I realized because... Uh, when uh, Doug came through and hugged uh, one of the astronauts, he banged his head on the uh, hatch coming through and he was bleeding. <laughs> so he's mopping his forehead for the first couple of minutes, trying to get it to stop before all the photos started. Oh, well, and your, your scalp bleeds quite profusely, as I discovered not too long ago yeah. when I, I'm in accident and emergency. The um, one of the things I've really enjoyed about this is is because this was a commercial launch. I'm thinking this is one of the reasons. Is one of the most important things after you know a safety, b make the mission a success. The next closest thing is make sure we've got great video and audio. So that's what they were talking about. Going okay, you got this camera ready, that camera. Okay, you got your mic. Hey, turn up the gain on this mic. You could hear him getting everything ready, so it would be awesome for us. I like it. Yeah, well, obviously, I mean. One of the goals here is to reignite the kind of passion and interest in space that kids who grew up in the 60s would have had. They said that uh, when when they were talking to the astronauts in the in the dog and pony show portion of this, that it was the number one trending thing anywhere, it, like number one on Twitter, number one on TV. Everybody was watching it. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So that was pretty that was pretty fun. Let's be excited about something. Part of it is we're so desperate for good news. That, that is also true. Yeah. Um, I really wish I'd put my palate cleansers in the opposite order because that would have been such a nice place to end the show. But, yeah. I, <laughs> but you still I'll have a good that, one. That's true. Stanford University have made their developing apps for iOS course available for free online. So if you're in lockdown with nothing else to do apart from enjoying Crew Dragon, which is now docked and that's kind of excitement's over, you can learn how to write apps for iOS.
That's cool. That's our that's our yeah. nerd audience right there. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I am so glad you put palate cleansers at the end because ending on ransomware and stuff is not where we want to go. Let's end on the happy stuff. I appreciate you putting that in, Mark. It's always fun, and I have a few in reserve. Actually, actually, I could have done four this week, but I thought, no, I'm going to save them because what if what if nothing nice happens in the next two weeks? But anyway, <laughs> the important thing is between now and then that you stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions, or your audio reviews. We have one coming up next week from Andrew Darlow, which is super fun. Some uh, tiny tips. Anyway, you can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Remember how we uh, Frank suggested that you uh, become a patron? Well, he didn't suggest it, but he set me up to suggest it to you. You do that by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to give a one-time donation? Podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join our Slack community like Vec did this week for the first time? That's podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join our Facebook community, that's at podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to what? Podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.